90% of all scientists that have ever been alive are alive today. That's a lot of information, but don't panic. It's not an exact science. Hey, Shannon, how are you? Uh, just trying to finish all my syllabi. <laughs> <laughs> I made the dumb, dumb mistake of saying, I'll teach three days, five days, sorry, not three days, five days a week this semester. <laughs> Yeah, that's a lot of teaching and a lot of prep Mm -hmm. and even more grading. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, I'm sure you'll hear me complain about it come first test or something. I'm probably not going to sign anything just because, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) At the end, I'll just be like, what are these three types of rocks? Good deal. (laughs) No, you won't. You're right. You're a good teacher. You're right. Well, I don't know about that, but I will definitely do more than that, but... Yeah, so um, I did that silly thing, and I probably, I'm excited now because, you know, school hasn't started yet, but come 1st of September, I'm going to say, what did you do, Shannon? <laughs> right. <laughs> so in the springtime, remind, remind me of this, okay, so I don't do this again. <laughs> well, we literally have it on tape, so. Literally. <laughs> or not on tape anymore. Sorry, kids. Uh. <laughs> oh, man. But, uh, yeah, so we're actually recording this one a little bit early because you're going back out to field camp and I'm going out of the country for teaching again. Yay! (laughs) I don't know. More travel. Yeah, I was going to say, I don't know if you're actually excited about it, but, you know. You know, I actually don't really enjoy international travel that much. Is it just because of your bad luck with flying? No, it's just a pain. Yeah. Yeah, it really is. I try to remember my 37-hour trip to Brazil. It was rough. (laughs) Getting, you know, cell phone plans arranged so you don't rack up massive bills. Getting currency for the correct country where you're going. Mm -hmm. Getting all of your credit cards notified that you're going to be out of the country. Dealing with immigration. It's always just a pain. (laughs) It certainly is. My favorite is to just go to a an ATM and just see if I can figure out the language. Right. <laughs> it's always it's always a crapshoot, but that's what I usually do. <laughs> yeah, and if you're going with somebody for this the next two international trips, I'll actually have some co teachers there with me. Ah, that's uh, nice. But when but when you're going by yourself, it's really just not a lot of fun. No, it's not at all. Not at all. I mean, but at least in Canada, you can, you know, read the ATM, right? (laughs) Yes, absolutely. (laughs) Oh, man. Yeah, so we'll both be back in the country eventually, and we'll get back onto it. But um, this week's going to be our last summer short. Huh. We didn't have that many this summer. (laughs) Hey, I tried to stay whenever I put up the notes, which were two sentences long. I tried to stay in the, (laughs) you know, in the spirit of the summer shorts. Yes, listeners, you have no idea how many of these shows we said this will be a quick one. And 45 minutes later, we were just getting to Fun Paper Friday. Inevitably, inevitably, we're like, oh, yeah, we'll breeze through this 58 minutes. (laughs) But this one we, well, we'll try to slightly breeze through this one because I think this is probably something, a topic that we should definitely revisit in the future and you know, introducing it to people that aren't used to it, but also to people who are used to it, because it's a thing that I think a lot of scientists, especially younger scientists or students, 
don't really talk about. Everyone's just kind of like, yeah, this is how you do it. And then you don't really know what you're doing, but then you're too afraid to admit it and imposter syndrome and all this stuff. But what I'm talking about is how do you choose how to visualize your data? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Well, if you know what you're looking for, it's really a pretty easy process. (laughs) Thanks. (laughs) That was super helpful. (laughs) (laughs) But that that first sentence is the loaded part. Exactly. Um, And this is something like, I'm not a learner. You know, there's the different types of learners. And I am not a visual learner. Um. Well, I am. I like to read the things, but I'm not the person that goes through and reads figures. I want to read the text. I rarely go to the figures first or last. (laughs) Like, I want to read all the text, then revisit the figures. And, like, this is how I study, too, is by rewriting my notes. Not typing, kids. Writing. (laughs) Um, Because evolutionarily, we haven't got there yet. But anyway, so... That's what kind of learner I am. And I know lots of people are not like that. Like one of my students, he did every figure in his thesis before he ever wrote hardly anything. And that's just not how my brain works. So when it comes time for me to do figures, it's a little bit harder because I can write all day about something, but to actually visualize it, and especially in a creative way, it's kind of hard. Yeah, and see, that's different. I, I do that. I, I make figures before I make the outline for uh-huh. the paper. Yeah. 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 I, uh, so I definitely am more of a visual person. I mean, I enjoy reading as well, but I would never read all the text of a paper without looking at the figures. I'll look at the figures, I'll look at the abstract, I'll look at the conclusion, and then if it's worth it, I'll go through and read the body. Yeah, uh, see? And, and I think I'm probably, you're probably more in the norm for the sciences, just based on my, you know, N of 50 or something like that. I feel like that's how most scientists think. And I just, I don't. And I try to. And I'm very impressed by, like, really great graphics. Um, there's a PhD student that just graduated not long ago. And it's, that is exactly how he thought. Like, he would make graphs of different data just to help, not, not because he was writing a paper or doing anything, but just to help him figure it out. And it's just something that I'm not used to. Like, I'm used to looking at a table or reading a table, but it's not my intuitive go-to. And I'm trying to train my brain to be more like he was because it's always really blown my mind how he can take this stuff and start correlating it with these binary and ternary graphs and worse than that and say, yeah, look at this. Don't you see? And it's like, no, I want to read your discussion about it (laughs) so I wanted to talk to somebody who does think like that you and just talk about like how do we decide to do this because I think maybe graphs are daunting to a lot of people who aren't scientists I think that data visualization is scary sometimes and maybe it turns people off I don't know I think so even just seeing a graph of like stock price over time a lot of people are like, I don't, I don't do charts. I don't do that kind of thing. Right. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So, you know, how do you get over that? Like, how do you make it easy? Because I know you didn't have to take igneous petrology, um, but man, 
quaternary diagrams where you're starting to get into multiple phase systems, they're super tricky to make and read and orient yourself on. It just takes practice, but that might, you know, the first glance at that's like, oh, I can't do this at all. But I digress. We should start easy with the simple binary graph, right? Right. And we might not make it much past binary graphs. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah. Okay. Summer shorts. That's probably true. <laughs> right. So this is your typical XY plot. And we say that because it has an x-axis that runs horizontally on the page and a y-axis that runs vertically on the page. And they represent some quantities. Uh, in some cases, the x-axis is commonly time. Okay. Uh, but either way, the x-axis is what we would call the independent variable, and the y-axis contains the dependent variable. Okay. And this gets more conflated when you start talking about geology because time is sometimes represented from the beginning on the left to the present on the right or the opposite direction. Right. When you have graphs that are the units are years ago, it can get rather confusing. Right. Exactly. Yeah. So even that simple statement of, oh, X is time can get really confusing. True. But in any chart that you're making, you should have something that you know, something that you controlled, and then something that you're observing the result of that control. Right. And that would be the dependent variable, the thing that you're observing. So maybe you're looking at the temperature of a water kettle over time after you put it on a burner. So time is the independent. You are not controlling that most likely, but the temperature is the dependent. It is dependent on time and it is based on what you're doing to the system. Mm -hmm. Okay. That seems totally legit. But... There's also something called cross plots that you can do with XY graphs. <laughs> See, now it's starting to, okay. Mm -hmm. So explain a cross plot. So here you're saying, are these two variables correlated in any way? Right. So if I plot data one and data two, do all the dots make any kind of shape, a line, a exponent, logarithm, or are they just random scatter, i.e. uncorrelated? Uh, so now this is the um, <laughs> this correlation versus causation thing that you might hear a lot of people talk about, right? And this is the fodder for lots of ridiculous graphs all over the internet. Right, like number of Willie Nelson songs released in a given year versus number of deaths by drowning or something. Right, exactly. But also... Isn't that kind of how, like, Freakonomics started, too? <laughs> True. Except for these correlations were statistically proven to make sense. And you can do that, well, the easiest way to do that, but it's also kind of a, uh, I don't know. I hate it when people, like, say, here's the data, and then they do a best fit line, and they say, oh, my R value is 0.8. This means these things are related. 
Well, and a lot of times people will say, this means it explains 80% of my data, which is completely oh, totally a terrible wrong. statement. Totally wrong. Oh, that, that hurt me even. <laughs> uh. <laughs> oh, man, that's like 20% chance of rain, but that's a whole nother show. <laughs> right. <laughs> oh, man. Okay. But the idea is, like, let's say I have a data set where I measured 27 things about rocks. And so I, I have these samples. Maybe I measured a bunch of isotopes. Maybe I quantified their color. Maybe I quantified their density, their seismic velocity, their uh, gamma radiation, any parameter that you can think of. Uh-huh. So to make a massive cross plot of these, I would just plot everything against everything else. <sighs> so I would have a bunch of plots. So I would have, you know, seismic velocity and density, seismic velocity and gamma ray, seismic velocity and DELO18, seismic velocity and some other isotope. And you start seeing, okay, well, these things have a relationship. Maybe it's linear, maybe it's nonlinear. And these things don't have a relationship. It's a really good, I mean, your, your eye is an amazing tool for picking out patterns. And that's why just making these sort of plots that they're never going to be in a paper. They're probably never going to be in a talk. But they're data exploration plots that are just for you so your eyes can start finding patterns and start understanding your data. Right. So this is exactly what I want to sort of make myself do because this is what... Um, this PhD student did was he's like, I'm gonna do a bunch of random sort of magnetic experiments. And so he does these magnetic experiments, stuff like taking susceptibility measurements or modeling the magnetic parameters. And then he would say, okay, what's my lithology? So I've got some shales. These are all shales, but what varies in the shales? Um, Total organic content, that varies. So I'm going to plot these magnetic parameters versus total organic content. Okay, what else varies? You know, mineralogy. So I'm going to plot these shales, mineralogy versus these magnetic parameters. And that's exactly what he did. Exactly what you just described was just for funsies, let's throw all these up, see what the cat laps up, basically. And, you know, it came out with some some weird things that he wound up moving further on. And whether... Whether there was a real correlation or not, you know, the sample size, his sample size was pretty small. I think it starts to open up your mind to different, you know, it gets you out of the whole, like, this is what I believe. And so I'm going to prove it, you know, like, that's the worst thing (laughs) doing research is having this hypothesis and you're only trying to prove it, right? You're not trying to disprove it or you can't hold two hypotheses competing hypotheses in your brain at the same time like that's what you need to do and i think these different plots like that can help you do it because you never know what's going to come out of it right because some of them might make no sense at all but then some of them might have some patterns in them well and what you're describing is also why we invented the null hypothesis (laughs) you have to take the hypothesis that is the opposite of what you think and disprove it yes exactly but people don't students it takes a lot to get a student to start working that way because that's not your initial that's not the initial starting point generally no i mean the way you should approach some of these things is i'm probably wrong 
but if I'm not, I need to prove that. Exactly. Exactly. Like, this is what I think, so I'm going to try everything outside of this to make sure this is correct. Right. Right. And, you know, really, even not just... So, cross-plotting, you can get into trouble because <laughs> you see lots of things that... Uh-huh. Th- they're vaguely correlated, but there's no physical meaning, at least not that we understand. Uh, then you start bordering on some machine learning things, and that's also another show and rant oh boy that's for sure uh, <laughs> so much to say about that <laughs> but really the the key thing here is you need to explore your data and understand it and your data if it's any kind of non-trivial data probably has more than two things in it right right i mean maybe not for paleo mag but <laughs> Well, you're dealing with a three-component magnetic vector, and then you're dealing with that three-component vector over multiple measurements as you go along a fourth axis of temperature. Of temperature, yeah, you're exactly right. And so what's interesting is when you redesigned all of our software, you know, we take these measurements, which are these incremental temperature steps, right? Sometimes they can be, you know, 30 or 40 of them, and... As you're collecting this data as the researcher or the student or whatever, you just see these numbers. So it's like you could see trends in numbers. You can see if the numbers are changing or not. But that's just looking and saying, okay, 100 isn't 110, which isn't 90. But when you redesigned our software, you plot it. You have it plot on each individual step. So when you're taking these measurements, you see these plots that you just described, John, as you're collecting that data. And I... I found that very interesting because that is, you know, not what I think of. I'm used to just seeing these lines of texts in this text table and plotting it in my mind. But actually seeing it, the students come to me a whole lot more now with questions. Whereas before, they just trudged through the drudgery of, you know, making all those measurements. But now they're thinking the whole time because they're actually visualizing what the magnetization is doing over that time period, over each of those steps. And I think it's getting a lot more people more engaged with their own data, which is the point. (laughs) Right. And I mean, I don't, when I get a data set, the first thing I do is say, even if I don't know what the columns are. So when I went to a customer site several months ago, I, I didn't really know anything about their testing machine other than basic concepts of how it worked. Mm -hmm. And I said, well, you give me a data file before you give me anything else. Mm -hmm. And the columns weren't labeled with any particularly meaningful labels. So I had no idea what each column was, but I just plotted each column over time and said, okay, well, this looks like it's probably some kind of displacement because I can see it moving as a straight line over time and then it changes slope and then it changes slope. This is probably a stress that responds to that displacement And then once you start figuring that out, you can start plotting some of these channels against each other. And after an hour of just exploring a data file, say, okay, I think I understand what your goal is with this machine. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Wow. Gotcha. So, I mean, that's just me. But like you said, I'm a visual person. I, I cannot look at a wall of numbers, even if it's just a table of earthquake locations and magnitudes or something like that. It means nothing to me until I make plots. See, that's, yeah. And and I don't think any way is, you know, right or wrong, but it 
does stand a reason. Like, this is how we communicate our data, though, as well. So, not that I'm saying, I'm at a disadvantage, wah, but a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> because, you know, I can talk about it all day, but when it comes down to actually making it, like, this is how, this is how you have to get your point across. So, you've talked about on the show before, for those who haven't listened in a while, because it's been a while since you've done this, you... Um, been involved with these lightning talks, which is like a five-minute short talk about your research. And sometimes we do these. We've actually started doing them with our grad students. We spend a whole colloquium with, you know, 10 lightning talks or something like that. And you say, okay, you have two slides. That's what you have. And you have to talk about your entire master's thesis or dissertation in two slides. So you better master these graphs because that's all you have. You know, you don't have room to write out on two slides everything. You want to show your data. And that's all you got, man. And you never know when some of these lightning talks might, you know, click something in your brain and be like, oh, I can work with this person because I can solve this problem for them or do this. And so the importance of mastering this visualization technique can't be stressed enough, I don't think. <laughs> And making better plots doesn't mean making more complicated plots with more things on them. Right. E Edward Tufte would argue the less ink that is on the page, the better plot you made. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I'm, yeah, I'm pro that. I really need to get into the habit, I think, of just making plots in general, just for my own consumption. Well, so I'm curious, what is your hindrance to doing so? Is it having the right tool set to do it or... No, it's... What makes you not make plots? I think it's that whole imposter syndrome. I feel like if I'm making these plots, then I'm saying, this is what the data says. And so, like, if anyone can... I don't know. I don't know what the hindrance is. Like, if someone comes in, am I going to be like, oh, don't look at this plot. I just made this just for my own brain, you know? Like, that's silly. <laughs> but I think that's it, you know? Like, I'm, I'm too afraid to, like, put it out there. I guess. It feels like when you're making that plot, like you're making a figure for something, so you have to like present it. But that's not true. So that's one thing I like about Jupyter Notebooks or just interactive Python shells is I'll make a plot, and it is very likely that when I close that notebook or exit that shell, I won't save it. I'll never make that plot again. Yeah. It's trivial to throw it away, Ugh. but it let me look at that data. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Maybe it's like my OCD of archiving things is that I couldn't ever just like let something go. You know. Well, if it's a if it's just a quick dirty plot, and you're making it for yourself, like you might not even have access labels on it, so you're not letting much go. I know, but man, it just plots feel like the final thing to me. That's what's so. Hmm. That's that's really weird. It is weird. I feel like I'm going to owe you, like, money on this psychologist couch right now. <laughs> like <laughs> well, like, e even uh, programs like SAC that, you know, everybody uses, they have, a lot of them have functions that are called QDP or equivalent, mm -hmm. uh, which is quick, dirty plot. Oh, there you go. Like, it's not a pretty plot. It doesn't have lots of labels. It doesn't have lots of fanciness. It just is a basic graph of the data. So I actually started thinking about this in a lot of detail and like wrote my little note to myself that I wanted to talk to you about it when I took um, an R class. 
Interesting. So what about that made you want to talk about this? So what we were doing was we were using a pack package called R Astro and it was looking at paleoclimate data. So there's all this cyclicity in <laughs> in everything related to climate, right? So there's like orbital cyclicity, there's the Earth's axis tilt cyclicity, there's the eccentricity cyclicity. There's so much cyclicity. <laughs> and <laughs> like if you have enough sediments and enough continuous sedimentation, you can record this cyclicity. But there's that's the that's the beef, right? Like are you constantly depositing sediment and hitting all of the cyclicity? If you're not, if you have any hiatuses, it might, you know, throw off that cyclicity. So how do you start to look at these data together to figure out whether you even have cyclicity. Cause just like you said, like you can see with your eye, you know, we're good at these patterns. And so, which is how these patterns got seen in the first place when you're looking at um, these orbital parameters and stuff. And so it was just this package and you had all this data and it was that little quick, dirty R plot. And she, when she was teaching it, you know, she said, this isn't, these aren't plots that you would want to publish with. They're just to show you what you got right here just what you were just describing the QDP. Right. Um, mm -hmm. and it's like, Oh, like people want to see that, <laughs> like just to think about. And so that's what got me thinking about it because she was like, try, you know, plotting number one variable versus number five variable. And then she walked us through doing them all. And she was like, you know, you want to, you want to investigate all of this. So why wouldn't you plot all this stuff just to see it? And it's like, Oh yeah, you really would you know, because you never know where there is a correlation that could turn out to be something real or whether there is real cyclicity, right? So it's just that first order of glancing at it and then moving forward with it. Right. Or in, you know, my case in grad school, it was like, did this experiment work? Mm -hmm. Like, I want to make a few quick plots. And it was often during meetings with my advisors, you know, we'd be making plots on the fly. We'd say, oh, I wonder if you can see, you know, signal X in trace Y. Yeah. Mm -hmm. and, and I think some of my reticence, to go back to my psychological, you know, profiling here, <laughs> it's not that I don't make plots. We make plots all the time, but we have specific uh, software sets that make a specific plot. You know what I mean? So it's like we visualize our data constantly, especially if we're doing anisotropy of magnetic susceptibility data. Like there's all kinds of visualizations that it just spits out. But to take that data and then plot it against something else, that's the step that I don't generally think of. Well, like, or have you ever looked at like the X component of magnetization over temperature exactly. alone? Exactly. No. Or something that might help you spot things like equipment problems. <laughs> right. <laughs> that would be nice. I mean, a big thing would be like, suscept especially with what we do, is, you know, something about changes in susceptibility versus lithology. You know, that's not something that comes out of the susceptibility plotting software. That's something you'd have to take that data and then plot it yourself, you know. So stuff like that. Um it's just something I'm trying to train myself to do. And I'm sure there are a few people like me who this isn't their first, you know, their first way of reading the data, probably mostly because there's software packages 
that specific, you know, specific scientific people use. So it's like, if you're a paleomagnetist, you use these five pieces of software. Yeah, they're real old and crappy. But now I feel like with stuff like these R packages and matplotlib and all this stuff, like it's making it more accessible to your own creativity. It's kind of interesting to me. Right. And I would encourage, you know, listeners, anybody to just play with some data. Data is easy to find now. Mm-hmm. There are lots of data sets for things like machine learning. Uh, I've got data hosted publicly. There's a lot of National Science Foundation funded things. So you can go get seismograms. You can go get all kinds of stuff or find a paper. And I mean, you don't have to know any programming language. You can use Excel. <laughs> Did that hurt you to say? <laughs> you know, I, I would rather use Excel to make plots and look at them versus not making any plots. There you go. Because I think the biggest hindrance for people in any programming language, like making a plot in most programming languages is pretty easy. And there are lots of examples of it. Mm-hmm. Reading data is hard. Yeah, okay. And you have a data file that has some weird thing, like it's delimited with semicolons instead of commas, or it uses minus 969.2 as a missing value or some other crazy thing. And that can stop you dead in your tracks. Right. Yeah. And it's one of those things that you get with more experience, but I would rather use Excel or there are other tools like Igor Pro that let you, in a point-and-click way, make plots. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so... I, I'd had a couple of meetings this last semester, um, meeting with the 3D visualization people, and the thought of, and I know I talked to you about this personally, not on the show, of making, you know, these orthogonal projection plots, like you said, it's basically four axes is what we're looking at. You know, taking that and visualizing it in 3D would be amazing, because we have this orthogonal plot that we project onto this 2D plot and it turns a lot of people off of paleomagnetism because it's hard to explain. It's very hard to explain, and it's even harder to grok, if you will. <laughs> so right. by doing it in 3D, you could easily do that. You could easily step in and be like, oh, I see this now. And since that's not something I usually go towards, but also I like teaching, I think that would be a cool thing to to try to visualize. So we can talk about that in depth at another time. I just... Wanted to get the ball rolling since it's getting back into research season and also to allay any fears that other people might have. Like, don't be afraid to do this. Yes, it is scary. And it's scary, just like you just said, John, to try to actually truly understand that data. But, I mean, if you want to do it, do it. Right. And you never know what you'll find. I mean, you can do something like record the temperature in your house once every five minutes. And you'll find interesting things in that data if you look at it over <laughs> a long enough period of time. That feels a little too paranormal for me to want to um, <laughs> look at that. <laughs> <laughs> but that's just my overactive imagination. Well, just things like, of, oh, well, this night it got a lot colder than the other nights in the house. Oh, you know, I had trouble sleeping that night. So I got up and turned the air conditioner down. Then you see that over several months and you say, okay, well, when do I have trouble sleeping and plot some other data? And you might realize... 
oh, it's when it's a full moon, I have trouble sleeping, so I need better shades. There you go. So, mm -hmm. data analysis for the win. <laughs> Excellent. Uh, and I did do some MetPy Monday videos recently. We were actually looking at outside temperature data, but looking at it in the frequency domain as well, which would oh, be another okay. show topic. But that's one that uh, if you're interested in that kind of thing, you can go find that video. Just search MetPy Mondays on YouTube. Uh, didn't we have a show about frequency domain? Because that stuff's really messed up. Yeah, I think we've talked about it. So it might, might be something to revisit, though. Yeah, absolutely. Um, we should do that in our spare time, huh? Yeah, which <laughs> leads us to everybody's favorite segment of the show. Fun Paper Friday. Yay. <laughs> so yeah. you know it's going to be a good paper when the last part of the paper, the last section, is called Trigger Warning. <laughs> So this is a first. We've never seen that before, but it was super good. <laughs> I guess they thought it was too snarky that they had to have this in here. <laughs> yeah, so it's much to do with nothing. Micro simulation study on time management in primary care by Caverly, Hayward, and Burke. So this does not sound like a funny paper, really, <laughs> based on the No, title. in fact, when you first sent it, I was like, really <laughs> but it didn't take long <laughs> i'm basically getting to the trigger warning before i realized okay yes this is going to be really good <laughs> so the idea of this paper is primary care physicians often say they don't have enough time to counsel all of their patients adequately on preventative care measures right. which having recently been to primary care doctors for several little things Yes, I agree. Uh, so on average, they get to spend a whopping 29 minutes a day talking about preventative care to their patients. So this is crazy to me because obviously there's been a lot of research done because they actually cite a lot of <laughs> real studies. I mean, this is a funny real study, but um, yeah, they said this 59 seconds on shared decision making for lung cancer screening is all that doctors spend talking to lung cancer patients, despite it being known that experts, uh, known by experts that five minutes is the absolute minimum that should be spent on it. That's insane. Well, and I was thinking about, uh, you know, folks that uh, have been around me, some knew that I had this weird thing on my eye called a Chilazian cyst. Mm -hmm. uh, and when it wasn't going away, I thought about that visit after reading this paper where the doctor basically said, we're going to put shots in your eyelid, flip it inside out, and cut this thing out from the underside. Do you want to do that? <laughs> that whole decision, for which I didn't even know was an option when I walked into the office, yeah, that took less than a minute for them to explain and say, we need to know whether we're going to do this right now. Yeah, that's crazy. And that's for somebody cutting on your eyelid, which is a terrifying thing if you think about it long enough. So don't. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah. Um, so the satirical part of this paper is obviously that <laughs> it says in their conclusions, because this is in the BMJ. Um, and so they've got these great abstracts, you know, and says that, you know, obviously these doctors are just complaining about um, how they have too little time to do this stuff. But um, strangely, no research has asked the obvious follow-up questions. Have they no evenings? Have they no weekends? <laughs> right. 
And they even have a whole section. So they do a Monte Carlo simulation with patients that revisit at realistic intervals and so on. Um, and they say, well, sure, we're going to burn more people out, but there's enough supply of new doctors to handle the burnout, increased burnout rate. <laughs> and they had to do that when they were residents anyway. Exactly. They said you didn't get sleep in there anyway. <laughs> I love this one of their examples to, to um, change this. It says one fewer, one fewer toilet break enables the completion of as many as five additional clinical alerts, up to 10 for older men. <laughs> Right. <laughs> oh, that was great. <laughs> and it says if you reduce toilet breaks to once every other day and don't spend time with older children who probably don't want to see you anyway, <laughs> then you could squeeze in even more of these basic preventative care counseling oh, sessions. Oh, man, it's so true. Um, <laughs> I love their constant, um, constant referrals, you know. Following the long tradition of data-driven management, we commissioned a study to quantify precisely what we already know. Doctors have vast amounts of time for thumb twiddling. <laughs> right. <laughs> oh, man. And just the snark in here is so great um, about doctors complaining and mewling and shirking responsibilities and grumbling all the time about having no time. <laughs> I love it. Um they also have a, they reference a thing called the no true Scotsman fallacy. I don't know if you looked this up. No, do tell. Oh, no, I didn't look it up either. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I assumed it would be something that you would be excited about. Um, but there's a reference in here, so maybe we'll revisit it. Yeah, and they also have this great chart of uh, after working under these conditions, I think their Monte Carlo simulation ran for several years to allow enough revisits. Uh, so 56 out of a hundred GPs are burnt out at baseline. Six more are burnt out dealing with all highly recommended preventative services. 11 more GPs are burnt out by adding shared decision-making and 27 GPs are hanging on by a thread. <laughs> oh, so the trigger warning is that they are themselves in fact, clinicians and gps and so you know everything they say they actually know about um yeah the no true scotsman fallacy though um is an appeal to purity an informal fallacy in which one attempts to protect a universal generalization from counterexamples by changing the definition in an ad hoc fashion to exclude that counterexample yeah. okay so it making what it is a moving target so you're never wrong exactly yes which makes this paper even funnier <laughs> sounds like some agu talks i've seen yeah sure does <laughs> <laughs> oh the example they give is pretty great no scotsman puts sugar on his porridge but my An uncle angus is a scotsman he puts sugar on his porridge but no true scotsman puts sugar on his porridge right yeah nice <laughs> um, uh, they also have figure three that is the 24 hours in the day and they have crossed out leisure and sports and sleeping and grooming and expanded says more work hours squeeze in shared decision making and all prevention <laughs> oh, i love it <laughs> and it says um the time for other activities not elsewhere classified was cut entirely, such as groceries, shopping, finances, home care and maintenance, children care, <laughs> email and mail. <laughs> uh, 
Uh, yeah, this is really funny, but also kind of scary too, right? <laughs> yes, I mean the the medical profession, at least in the U.S., is very uh, strained right now. Yeah, right, exactly. I was actually really excited because this was, you know, a U.S. Um, they said by U.S. doctors, um, and the amount of what did they say in here? This is great. U.S. GPs. Um, have a wide range of annual workout hours from honeybee type, frenetic to koala type, more leisurely workers. <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, yeah, that was great. Um, so yeah, it's kind of scary, you know, just a minute of consultation when you have lung cancer. But just like you said, you know, you've got this thing on your eye that they want to cut out of your eye. And you talked about it for like 30 seconds. <laughs> yeah. Hmm. And, you know, while while you're numbing, they go see somebody else and knock out another eye exam and because it's all about throughput. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, I once talked to someone. It was a physician's assistant that worked in an office, and they had to log their time, and they would start getting in trouble if they spent more than 10 minutes with any patient. And it's like yeah. she had a patient who was basically going to die in like six months and you know was clearly wanting to work through this and i she told me that she got docked pay because she spent 20 minutes with this woman yeah yeah and they they actually quote a couple of um real studies in this because i looked those up too that basically say the same thing that to keep people through putting on the clinical side that they start, you know, having negative consequences, which is just outrageous. Yes. And you've got to remember, I mean, these are people too, they get strained. So the diagnosis at the end of the day is probably not as good as the first one. Yeah, exactly. But if we do though, what this paper says, tap into doctors, relaxing and thinking time or reading for personal interest, you could add an entire hour onto their day for more clinical yes. <laughs> and preventative maintenance talks. <laughs> Well, if you've got data on how long your GP consultation lasted or how many extra hours you can add on to a 24-hour day, <laughs> we would love to hear that, and preferably in graphical form. Shannon, how can they get a hold of us? <laughs> Please send us those graphs. Show at don'tpanicgeocast.com. We're on Twitter, at don'tpanicgeo. I'm at Shannon Doolin. John is at geo underscore Lehman. Uh, we hang out in the Slack chat room. I'm sure there's lots of people on there that could show some awesome graphs. Um, we're on the Software Underground, the Don't Panic channel. And as always, thank you to our Patreon supporters for keeping us going. And if you'd like to support us, patreon.com slash don'tpanicgeo. And until next week, remember, don't panic. It's not an exact science. Any opinions, findings, conclusions, or recommendations expressed are solely ours and do not necessarily reflect the views of our employers or funding.